Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Pastor, where we look at movies, music, comics, and more from the perspective of faith. Welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, this is Chris Perry, your pop culture pastor. Today, my guest is uh, James Prather, our senior Tolkien correspondent, as we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings and the new series, The Rings of Power. Uh, James is an associate professor in the School of Information Technology and Computing at Abilene Christian University. So he has a PhD in computer science as well as an MDiv and an MA in Old Testament. So a little bit of uh, dual interest there. And that's actually, uh, I think, where we got to know each other best. We were both doing our MDivs at ACU at the same time. Uh, we did both go to Oklahoma Christian University. I know we had uh, some over overlap there and some mutual friends, but I don't think we really hung out much. I guess you were, you were sometimes at the Alpha House. That it was like this one <laughs> for a couple of years. They let like 14 guys live in this house that was on campus that used to belong to the president. It was quite a time. A lot of Halo 2. I remember that game came out when I lived there. Yep. Uh, so we've, uh, we've stayed in touch uh, since we've been in school and uh, share a lot of pop culture interests. And uh, when I was back in Abilene earlier this year to do some of my doctoral work, we uh, were talking and uh, James told me if I ever do anything with Tolkien, then he's got dibs on it. And so uh, we're doing it now, uh, now that we've got a new show to talk about. And we're going to try and connect the two and think about uh, what they're doing with theology and what they do with the nature of power. We're also going to see how many Lord of the Rings memes that we can fit into this podcast. So, never thought I'd be podcasting side-by-side -side with a Texan. What about side-by-side -side with a friend? I, I could do that. Well, the way I usually start with, with my guests is just give us a little bit of your church background, Tell us maybe some spiritual bio, you know, no, not too long, don't need a whole life story, but uh, your, your interest in, in church and, and why it's important to you. Sure. So thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, I am a huge Tolkien nerd. Let me just say up at the front, let this be the hour we draw swords together. <laughs> uh, now, you know, my spiritual background is, was uh, practically born in church. Um, I mean, I was born on a Sunday. And uh, you know, the following, uh, I would have been in church the following week if I had not been in the NICU for a, a month back in 1984. Uh, but my parents called me their miracle baby because mm. I made it. And all the doctors said I, I wouldn't. Um, so, you know, um, grew up going to church and faith has always been an incredibly strong piece of my life. <clears throat> and church is is where I was uh, was given the language and and thinking to to think about the world uh, in in a in a Christian way, and you know that even continued on into going into college. You mentioned Oklahoma Christian, where uh, we both went to undergraduate, uh, and then you know after I graduated um, with a computer science degree, I felt this call to ministry, and so I quit my software development job and went and. Uh, went to seminary, which is where we met again. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, I, I thought I feel called to this ministry thing. And 
while I was here, um, I started adjunct teaching in computer science. Um, I had earned a master's degree in science as a, when I was working as a software developer in Dallas. And um, I started adjuncting and, and got into university teaching and thought, this feels a lot like ministry. Hmm. Uh, in fact, honestly, it feels a lot like mission work in that um, you have a lot of students who are they're on their own for the first time. And they're asking themselves, am I going to take this faith thing forward that my parents gave me? And, uh, and so I felt called to, to this. Uh, so I went ahead and, and um, pursued my PhD in computer science. And, you know, now I teach um, in the in the CS department here at ACU, although sometimes they let me off the, the chain to teach a Bible class. Occasionally I've taught message of the Old Testament before. Okay. Uh, and I also get to teach honors colloquia which is a, a one hour course for honors students. And I've done it uh, twice now on J.R.R. Tolkien and his writings and his life. Okay. So see, this is not just someone who you know likes a book. This is, we've got a professor here again who has taught <laughs> college level courses on this. So this is definitely going to be me throwing it to James a lot more than, than I normally would. The other thing we usually start out with is your kind of first pop culture interest. I don't know if you, you know, The Hobbit was the first thing that you read, but uh, what were some of your earliest things that got you into pop culture, music, movies, books, et cetera? Yeah, you know, um, like a lot of uh, the other people you've had on the the podcast, I, I am a big listener, by the way. I, I, I listen I appreciate to the podcast. You, you've yeah. shared stuff, which you're listening to the altar call at the end, so I appreciate that. Yeah. Good on I am, you. I'm one of the faithful, but you know, uh, like a lot of people um, you've talked to, you know, my, I grew up growing up in the eighties and early nineties, you know, uh, uh, I was obsessed with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, Power Rangers. I mean, I, I, I thought if I prayed hard enough, I could be a Power Ranger. Like it was, was that much. Um, and then, yeah, I, I didn't really enjoy reading much as a child. It was kind of like pulling teeth. Um, and then my English teacher, uh, Miss Carol Huff. Shout out, Mrs. Huff. Yeah, shout out, Miss Huff. She assigned The Hobbit in seventh grade, and it changed my life. Uh, and I loved it. I loved it. I loved it a lot. Uh, and then I read Lord of the Rings. Uh, and then <clears throat> she also assigned a read your own book. Like just, I'm not going to sign it. You pick your own book and do a book report on it. And and I was like, well, you know, I don't, I don't know what I like. Um, I mean, I read Lord of the Rings, but like, I guess I like Star Wars. I mean, I was pretty obsessed with mm -hmm. Star Wars. Sure. I was quoting It's a Trap before it was like popular. Right, before there were we, memes. We would, we would, we would rewind the, the VCR tape and get to It's a Trap and then do it again and again and again. Um, and so I was like, oh, I'll, I'll read a Star Wars book. And I they had these campy, you know, Star Wars books that in the extended universe. And I... I read that in a day and I, I made my parents take me back to Barnes and Noble and I, and basically read them all at that point. Um, just <clears throat> started devouring them. And from then on, I was this avid sci-fi fantasy nerd, just found my true calling reading all these books. Lord of the Rings movies came out when I was in high school mm -hmm. and just rocked my world. It was incredible. Uh, and, you know, still is. Yeah, it's still amazing how how well they did with it. We're planning a a watch party pretty soon, but yeah, I've got a friend who who, who has never seen any of them, and so we're very excited to make her sit down and watch them all. We're going to do all the 
the Hobbit meals, all seven of them, I think. So it's going to be a day. That's a it's a real travesty. Yeah, that day. I know. As a pop culture evangelist, I, I take it as part of my calling to make sure that everyone that's around me has experienced the important pop culture. And that includes Lord of the Rings. Right. Well, as we mentioned, this is actually the day this is dropping is kind of a special day. Today uh, is the birthday of Bilbo and Frodo Baggins. So happy birthday, Bilbo and Frodo. You know, as he says in, in the movie, in the book, Alas, 111 years is far too short a time to live among such excellent and admirable podcast listeners. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. I, don't, I still don't know what that means. I actually do like all of you if you're listening, so thanks for being here. Well, as you, you've already said some about your interest in Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. I didn't really grow up with them. It was always one of those things where you know, my dad had read them and he was kind of into that sort of thing. So like, you should read these, you should read these. And of course, when your dad is saying to do it, you don't want to. Sure, um, but sure. eventually, uh, I think when the movies were about to come out, I was like, well, maybe I'll, I'll finally check these out. And so I read through them and loved it and have read through Lord of the Rings, I think at least a couple of times as well as The Hobbit. And we're trying to figure out if we want to try and get my 10 year old to start reading it. But we like we mentioned, we try and watch through the trilogy, especially the extended editions. For a while, we would do it about once a year, uh, kind of yeah. towards the end of the year. It feels like a fall, winter sort of thing. I did start the Silmarillion, but I did not finish it. It is still on my shelf, but it's <laughs> been many years, so I would have to start from scratch. It has felled many a man yes. and woman. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is the true mark. Not just have you read Lord of the Rings. Have you read the Silmarillion? For those, yeah. for those that don't know, do you want to say a little bit about what that is? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, the the Silmarillion is uh, Tolkien's legendarium, which um, it kind of encompasses his, his his world and the grand sweeping narrative of history, starting with creation uh, into the first age, second age, and then on into the third age. And of course, the story in Lord of the Rings happens right at the end of the third age all right yeah we're gonna we're, we're not gonna try and overwhelm listeners uh with all the you know background but i think there is some of it that is really interesting and is going to help us make sense of lord of the rings and rings of power and the theology that's present in both of them but yeah i mean the silver really it kind of reads like a history book at times or even you know, kind of reads almost like scripture and so that's it's not as much of a story in the same at least not in the same way that lord of the rings is so you've already mentioned, you know, your interest in Lord of the Rings. Anything else uh, that's uh, an important thing for you? Do you know how many times you've read through the series? I mean, I think I've probably read through Lord of the Rings, I mean, probably four or five times, uh, just at different points in my life. And it's always meaningful in different ways, you know, um, after I got out of school, during seminary, of course, it takes on rich meanings. Mm. Um, after I have children, mm different and rich meanings for sure. Um, I've only read the Silmarillion once. Uh, it, it is a slog yeah, for sure. It's, it's kind of a um, one, one and done, I think. <laughs> kind of thing. Right, yeah. It's still on my list. Yeah. And uh, the unfinished tales. Um, and then there's, of course, there's a whole bunch of other writings that Tolkien uh, produced posthumously thanks to his son, Christopher. You know, so I, I haven't gotten to those yet. I have some friends who have, who have read those and just love them, but well, and that, that kind of leads into where we're going because the Rings of Power 
is not based on obviously a, a written work of Tolkien's. It's not like a story that he has, but it is kind of picking up some of the appendices and some of these unfinished uh, stories. So for those that you know that haven't checked it out yet or maybe have started watching Rings of Power on Amazon but don't really fully understand where it's where it's set, do you want to kind of tell us where that comes in in uh, the chronology, the relation to the rest of Tolkien's work and the setting, what you think the overall story is is going to be about? Sure. You know, and some of this is compounded by the fact that Amazon does not have the rights to the Silmarillion. So or anything in the first age, especially, they just don't have the rights to that. They have the rights to Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and anything in Lord of the Rings appendices, which has a lot of these elements in it. Mm -hmm. Mentioned some things from the Silmarillion. <clears throat> they don't have they don't have the rights to to the whole thing. So it can be difficult for them to kind of hint at some things that help make things sense without actually diving into them exploring them but you know rings of power takes place in the second age uh and if you've seen the show they frequently show a map where things are taking place to help people put things together but if you've ever seen a map of middle earth it won't make any sense because this is not happening in the same vicinities the same areas a, a lot of these places have been destroyed and are gone by the third age. Uh, th it takes place uh, during the, the height of, of Numenor and the power of the elves, Numenor being the, the kingdom, the great kingdom of men uh, of which Aragorn from Lord of the Rings is descended from and uh, kind of goes through uh, the, the, the coming of, of Sauron uh, again. Mm -hmm. Keeps coming back. Yeah. His defeat. Yeah, so maybe that's where the series is going to go. Um, and obviously so. the name Rings of Power implies that um, I, I believe this is the time of the forging of the rings. Yep. Again, it's Sauron. And it's already mentioned Celebrimbor. He's been in right. it some. And um, yep. so that's probably going to come into it. But again, you know, I, th I know some of the concern has been, well, are they going to change a lot of things and you know, try and tell a unique story? So, I mean, maybe these are spoilers, but maybe not. <laughs> we'll kind of have to see. <laughs> but I know for, you know, the, yeah. the, nerd, the Tolkien nerds, it's like, well, this is the story. So you got to tell this story. And so, right. you know, there were a lot of concerns before the, the series premiered. Uh, one of those being, are they going to be faithful to whatever story they're telling? And just the idea that it's Amazon that's doing it. I'm sure you could find fan art of Jeff Bezos as Smaug the dragon. You know, it's sitting on his <laughs> billions of dollars. Right. And right. since the, the series, especially Hobbit, talks a lot about, you know, being corrupted by by wealth and things. There's there's a bit of irony there. I don't know, what, what were some concerns you had about the series before it premiered at all? Yeah, so before it premiered, you know, there were all these rumors swirling about um, nudity in Lord of the Rings, right? And mm -hmm. I, I'm a, a follower of the um, Lord of the Rings memes subreddit on Reddit, right? And there was probably weekly a meme of, of Boromir saying, uh, Lord of the Rings has no nudity. Lord of the Rings needs no nudity. Uh, and yeah, people were really concerned about this. And, you know, that I think Tolkien would, of course, be rolling, uh, would be really upset um, if, if there were to be any. And, you know, there hasn't been any yet, but people were really afraid that Amazon would just make this into a Game of Thrones type show clothed in Tolkienian garb. Um, and that is really upsetting uh, as people who, 
who loved Tolkien for what he was actually trying to do, which will. Yeah, we're going to touch on that in just a minute, right? Is how is Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones different and similar? I mean, they're both fantasy series, but um, yeah, yeah, we're going to talk about kind of their different worldviews in, in just a moment. But yeah, a lot of concerns. Are they going to do it well? They're, they're spending all this money on it, but that doesn't always mean a lot. You know, the effects can be yeah. great, but that doesn't change how well it's written or acted or those sort of things. So yeah, I, I had a um, poor experience and, you know, people can disagree with me on this, but I had a poor experience with the Wheel of Time show done by Amazon uh, because it felt like they weren't, didn't really care too much about the source material. And also everything about the production, it, it, it felt cheap. Mm. Um, nothing felt lived in. Everything looked new. Um, and, and it just, even the buildings, you could tell they were made of styrofoam. Like, I don't know, it just, it was so much money put into something. And yet it still kind of turns out to be looking cheap. Yeah. I was afraid Lord of the Rings was going to do the same thing. Also an Amazon show. Yeah. So it has been beautiful. We were watching just, I haven't finished the third episode yet, but when they get to Numenor and there are a lot of gorgeous things, but uh, I don't know your initial thoughts, reactions. I've, I'm not saying I'd, hate it, but it hasn't really grabbed me as much as I kind of hoped it would. Um, it feels like it's taken way too long to get to telling any sort of story. Yeah. Um, and especially some of them, I, I mean, I, I feel like for one, they kind of started off too many stories mm -hmm. too quickly. Um, if we could just, you know, begin with one, like just say the Galadriel plot line and then slowly branch out from there. Uh, and, you know, because one of them, like the Harfoot storyline, just doesn't seem like it's doing anything. Yeah. They're kind of hanging out. They found this stranger who's probably a wizard. That's going to be my guess. Uh, I'll be maybe kind of bored if it's just uh, Gandalf again. Yeah. Right. Although it shouldn't be Gandalf because they didn't arrive until the beginning of the Third Age. Right. So, see, this is so. <laughs> nerds are going to complain <laughs> if it is. Right. But, yeah, like, again, this is one of those where, like, you could imagine Amazon thinking, well, we're doing a Lord of the Rings show. We've got to have a Gandalf or we've got to have a wizard like Gandalf in it, even if it doesn't really fit uh, what Tolkien had written. So, yeah, there's still those concerns, even if we're not sure yet. And, and like you said, like there's not really an audience surrogate. I find that it, that's very helpful in fantasy and sci-fi that you can have one character that we can connect with that stands in for the audience like Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. And so it's like, whose who's story is this? You know, there's a lot with Galadriel, but then it does jump around to other stories. And even in Lord of the Rings, right, it starts in the Shire with Frodo, and then it expands out from there. And eventually you're branching into multiple storylines, but that's after you've already established what the story is and who we care about. Yeah, and Galadriel was never meant to be someone the audience could connect with. Right, yeah, she's, <laughs> she's above all that. But yeah... Yeah, she's not going to be your, your surrogate, like you said. Yeah, for sure. But the the, the thing that I, I really do love about this show is that it is giving us a glimpse of Middle Earth in all of its height and glory. Uh, you see the Numenor, sh shining cities. You see Moria looking full and beautiful and, and full of light. And you see... Um, Lindon, the king, the one of the kingdoms of the elves, and it, it gives you this sense of grandeur so that when you go back to watching Lord of the Rings and you're trudging through the mines of Moria, 
and you're seeing how it's how far it's fallen, how dark the world has become. When you know when you stumble across the ruins of Weathertop, I mean Aragorn says, you know, this was once the Watchtower of Amonsul, and you, you know you just watch that and you're like, okay, whatever. But if you if you've seen it in Rings of Power and all its grandeur, and then you you come back to it in its fallen state, it, it helps you feel the weight that that the characters feel that the world has become a dark place um, in this final hour uh, before confronting Sauron. Yeah, it's filling out the world, which yeah. I mean, it's a prequel, right? And that's the the good and the bad of prequels is that they can give you more context, fill out the world a little bit, but sometimes like, well, but we already kind of know where the story's going, but maybe we don't because maybe Amazon's going to change it a bunch. We'll see. Well, we mentioned a second ago that we wanted to think about the, the worldview of Tolkien, the worldview uh, Lord of the Rings, and especially comparing that to the worldview of, of Game of Thrones and George R.R. R. Martin. Uh, and so there's an article that uh, came out recently by David French called It's Time to Remember Tolkien. And he uh, is kind of latching on to the fact that I think a lot of people have noticed that you know at the exact same cultural moment, we have a new Tolkien show and we have a new Game of Thrones show with House of the Dragon. And so it's kind of in this contest, like which is going to be more popular, which is going to have more you know, the zeitgeist, have people talking about it. And so French in this article is, is using this to think about what are the different approaches to the nature of good and evil and the theology and these kind of questions. We're thinking about what is their difference in they, the way they think about things like morality and hope. Uh, because as he mentions in the article, in the world of Game of Thrones, it's it's very humanistic. It's very like we're we're kind of on our own, right? There are a lot of talk about gods, and I'll probably have a future episode soon where we talk more about the world of Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon. And they talk about gods, but at least in my view, they aren't really doing a whole lot. And, and so there's not really any hope that comes from that, right? There's no bigger world that people are, are thinking towards, it's, it's, it's just us, right? It's just people and it's people treating each other horribly most of the time. And in, in this world, virtue is kind of a foolish thing to have and it's, it's actually deadly, right? So famously, Ned Stark, the, the, really the main character of the first season, he dies at the end because he's trying to do the right thing. And yeah. so this is a world where doing the right thing is not very smart. Well, and then Ned's son dies because he trusts people. Right? Yeah. So trust is yeah. trust is not good. Having principles, having morals, um, are ultimately uh, going to get you in trouble in that world. But that's not Lord of the Rings, right? And so that's why this article is called "It's Time to Remember Tolkien," because, I mean, the world kind of feels like that right now, where it's all just people arguing with each other, and there's nothing bigger. And so Lord of the Rings is inherently Christian, and we're going to talk about in what sense, but there is some faith that seems to be forming it for Tolkien, uh, where in ways that it's not for, for George R. R. Martin. And so as bleak as things can be in Lord of the Rings at times, it's ultimately hopeful, and it's a world where virtue is rewarded, and that can be something that sustains you even as you know, you're, you're walking into Mordor. Yeah, you know, I, I love his metaphor he uses about how Game of Thrones holds up a mirror to us. And literarily speaking, mirrors can be great, uh, helping us see ourselves. But he says Tolkien is more like stained glass. 
when you walk into a cathedral and it's one of the first things you notice um, is that it's this light source, but it also tells a beautiful story. Uh, and uh, it, it's a way of filtering that light um, so that people, especially in middle ages, can, can understand the story of the creator and uh, the creator's will for uh, the created. I have this piece highlighted here from French's article, which is, um, he says, the, the true rule perhaps of Game of Thrones isn't win or die, but rather win and die. The quest <laughs> for power unmoored from virtue is the doom of us all. And, you know, I think ironically, Tolkien, maybe not ironically, unironically, Tolkien agrees with this um, just entirely. The quest for power unmoored from virtue is the doom of us all. You can't use power and force to accomplish good uh, in this world. And of course, Tolkien saw that firsthand uh, in, in his life, uh, especially in, in you know, World War I on the battlefield. They both recognize that power can be deadly in this sense. And yet in Game of Thrones, it's like, well, but there's nothing else. So yeah. we're still going to do it. Right. And so everybody just keeps dying all the time. Whereas in the world of Tolkien, uh, there's that recognition. And but we're seeing people who are choosing better. You know, we mentioned Ned Stark, and he tries to do that, yeah. um, and it doesn't work out for him. But then you have Samwise Gamgee, who you know, probably one of the best, maybe the best character in the whole book. Tolkien called him the hero. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And and so he he it does choose what is good, and he chooses loyalty, and ultimately that's what saves the world. So it is a very different view, and uh, I think his argument is we need that right now. We need as a culture, as a world, as a country, to recognize that choosing what is good instead of just you know trying to claim power by any means necessary is the only thing that's that's going to save us. So you know, I mentioned a little bit of how there's you know kind of a Christian worldview that's influencing Tolkien's world here in, in Lord of the Rings. But in what sense is Tolkien's work theological? You know, I don't think of the hobbits as continually going to Hobbit church and praying. So how do we understand Tolkien's faith, his experience with evil, like you kind of alluded to already with, with uh, the First World War, and how is, how is God, in a sense, functioning in the world of Lord of the Rings? So they don't mention in Lord of the Rings or the Rings of Power show so far um, is, is the God, the, 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 the one, Eru Iluvatar, uh, and yeah, he, he doesn't seem to be very active um, at first glance. Um, you, know, you said the hobbits aren't praying. And yet, you know, there, there are no, there's no churches, you know, there's no crosses or anything. Um, for the most part, Tolkien's uh, world kind of is suffused with religious ideas. You know, he wrote uh, in one of his letters that the Lord of the Rings is not, it is fundamentally a Christian work at first so unconsciously you know, in the first writing of it, but consciously in the revision. But even if there's no direct mentions of it, there are a few small hints, you know. Um. Yeah, so when we're saying that, you know, Lord of the Rings is Christian or, or is theological, it's, it's not so simple as like, well, this character stands in for this, you know, being, right? Sauron equals Satan. Yeah. It's, it's more complicated than that. 
And so, yeah, it's not an allegory. Tolkien was very clear about that. And uh, I think through a little shade at his friend C.S. Lewis. And, you know, there's no Aslan in Lord of the Rings, where, it, where right. it's very much an obvious Christ figure that, that comes in. Right. Like the talking line is literally Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're not going to find that in Lord of the Rings. Yes. Um, but but you do find the, the 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 one the God breaking through in in important ways. Um, in one place you see uh, this happening is anytime the eagles show up. You know, I think the eagles get a lot of shade. Uh, people are like, well, every time they what didn't they just ride the eagles? To uh, right, the exactly. Uh, and then you know, every time they're in trouble, the eagles show up. Well, uh, it 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 has more to do with Tolkien's view uh, of what he called eucatastrophe it's a term mm. he made up eu being from the greek for good right and catastrophe is like basically a good catastrophe if, you, if that could be a thing um something so like earth shattering and, and amazing it's the god you know, breaking into the world uh in order to to help you know uh, towards humanity's salvation so you know the, the, the eagles coming uh, are are when you know, God's direct action in the world is uh, is is toward salvation for those that uh, are doing uh, His will. It's it's there, but it's it's more subtle, and so we want to think about the nature of how good is working, but also the nature of evil um, and the problem of evil that that is in the world of of Middle Earth. We've we've mentioned this already some, right? Of of there are these forces at work that are. They keep coming back. They seem um, inevitable almost. Right. And yet they're not a fundamental part of, of creation. Right? Evil is a distortion of, of what is good. And so orcs, right, are really just perverted elves. What, what's interesting is, you know, the problem of evil uh, is not one that uh, anyone can solve, not even the great Tolkien, certainly not us. Mm. Uh, and this you know, he, he wrestled with this his whole life, especially given his experiences, like I mentioned, you know, with fighting on the battlefield in World War One, um, And so this was his first idea of orcs being perverted elves, right? Like being twisted and 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 tortured into this, this race of orcs. And yet he was unhappy with this. <clears throat> and over mm -hmm. his lifetime, um, you know, towards the end of his life, he he would he had moved away from this idea, although it's not clear exactly. Uh, where he had landed uh, before he died, but even, you know, even he struggles with this, right? You can argue that you know because of what Melkor had done and the way Sauron or Saruman uses them, that they're not truly free, right? That they are slaves to this. They're not choosing this. But a lot of people have pointed out, like, well, is it almost racist to have inherently evil races or races that are inherently noble? Um, and there's there's a lot of continuing discussion of that I, you just right now with Dungeons and Dragons and right uh, yep. how they're wrestling with this, which all it all stems from Tolkien, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's worth noting that you know Tolkien replied in one of his letters that this criticism isn't entirely fair because he did not make the race of men or the race of elves entirely good and noble. Um, they mm -hmm. deeply struggle with uh, their own corruptions and desires. Um, you know, the elves uh, deeply want anything that can let them hold on to the way things are. They don't want things to change because they are unchanging. And when, mm. when things they love change and die, 
it makes them deeply sad, right? This is what attracts them to the power of the three rings that they receive or that they are made for them in secret anyway. But they, they want to hold on to this this world because they they would rather be the the best in Middle Earth than servants in Valinor to go home. And then, of course, men uh, struggle with this desire for power uh, and are completely corrupted by it. And um, that's, you know, that's, for instance, where the Nazgul come from. It's these kings of men who were corrupted uh, by this need for power. And there's a reason Sauron persists in the Third Age is because power corrupts. Uh, and, it, you know, so it, it's not like um, the things are, are purely, you know, elves are good, orcs bad. Mm -hmm. It's it, it's not as binary as that. And so, yeah, evil is is complicated, but as you mentioned, a lot of it comes down to the use of power and the love of power and how much that can be corrupting. And so that's kind of the way we want to think about this, um, the love of power and how that is, is such a negative force in the story of, of Lord of the Rings and probably also in Rings of Power. We're going to focus on Lord of the Rings at first, and then we'll come back at the end as, we, as we've thought about these themes and kind of see how they play out in, in this new series so far, even though you know, we can't say for certain where we're going with everything. One idea that is not limited to Tolkien, but I think he's definitely thinking about it, is the idea of power over versus power with. Right? Is power something that lets you dominate and control others, or is power used within a community for the betterment of others? So where do you see that played out in this, in the story and, and maybe where Tolkien is thinking about this? I think I know uh, the, the best example in the story is probably Gandalf, who is one of these um, angelic beings. Um, he's, he's a Maiar, he's a, he's a lesser angel, um, the Ainur, and he clearly has great amount of power. And, and yet, you know, he allows himself to be killed uh, for the sake of others. And so he, he uses his power for the good of others, right? He subordinates like his own will, his own good mm -hmm. to the good of the community, that being like the fellowship. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think it demonstrates this Christian ideal that humility and sacrifice demonstrate instead of being a desire to control others, it's a willingness to serve others, even at really great personal loss. Yeah, and and I know, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of discussion of like, why doesn't Gandalf do more? What what are his powers? You know, <laughs> right. like, Tolkien yeah. Tolkien doesn't really seem to want to define what the Maiar, the, these wizards, can actually do. You know, he obviously is able to be resurrected. I think that's kind of inherent to to what their purpose is, so they can always be there to guide people towards the good, away from evil. But yeah, Gandalf is always oh, seems almost too content at times to just kind of go along with others and be a guide rather than just take control. Yeah. He won't take the ring. I mean, that's, that's what the ring is about. It's uh, to bind them, right. To, to take right. control over everyone else. Right. Then, um, you know, when, when, when Gandalf gives himself up, um, it's this great scene in the fellowship of the ring um, in the, the bridge of Casa doom chapter. Uh, and, it, you know, the very famous, you know, is, is passed into greater nerddom and, and memes galore, right? <laughs> of, you cannot pass 
uh, he tells the Balrog, who is, by the way, another Maiar, they're, they're equals, you know, mm-hmm. one has fallen and the other still um, serves Eru Iluvatar. And, you know, and this is, again, this is another small glimpse, this breaking in of, of this theological backdrop when, and it's in the movie too. They did a great job. They preserved this, this entire line is directly from the book. He says, I am a servant of the secret fire. And Tolkien has the S and F in secret fire capitalized. Mm-hmm. And he says, wielder of the flame of Anor, you cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun, which means abyss. Um, go back to the shadow, right? And so um, this, he's, he's a servant of the secret fire. Like, what is the secret fire? Well, the secret fire is 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 Eru Iluvatar and this, this creativeness that he has, that he possesses to bring life to everything in the cosmos. Yeah, and so that that's what he has. And yet, yeah, he doesn't use it as much as we would want him to, but he uses it in a self-sacrificial way. And yet so many other forces at work in the story are looking for this, you know, power over. And like I said, that's what the one ring is trying to do. And there's so many people that think, well, if we could just use the ring to defeat evil, then, you know, why not? It's a gift. Yeah. That's what Boromir, uh, that's that's kind of his storyline in Fellowship is, just he has good ends in mind, but Tolkien, I think, believes that they can't be achieved by evil means, which is all that the ring is. It cannot be used for good because it was formed uh, from evil. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, in, in that in that scene um, in the, the council there, um, Boromir kind of exemplifies this typical position that people have that, <clears throat> well, if we could just use this power uh for for good we could we could win think of the world we could have mm-hmm. if we could use this power um well and nobly but um elrond knows gandalf knows uh it just doesn't work like that right the ring is wholly yeah. evil um but he says interestingly in that exchange he says nothing at the beginning is evil Right. He says even Sauron at the beginning was not evil. Uh, and so, again, he, he has, has this, um, this, this Christological or theological worldview kind of breaks in again, uh, just in that, in that exchange. But, you know, Tolkien firmly believes the ends do not justify the means. And, you know, as a computer science professor, um, I spend a lot of time talking about technology. Uh, and you know, Tolkien had a very low view of technology, right? These mm-hmm. these things we make that help us control our world and give us great power are kind of like rings of power, and they're <laughs> bad. Um, and he just, you know, I think Tolkien would just say, "Look at my the things that have happened in the world in my life. Look at the immense destructive power unleashed in World War One, unlike never before. Look at the atomic bomb unleashed at the end of World War Two. Um, which his son fought in World War II. Um, mm. I think you, you just you can just easily see that he has this deep suspicion of of uh, the ends justify the means. And so Boromir, I mean, he he dies because yeah. partly because he tries to take it, and yet even at the end, he seems to realize uh, there's some self sacrifice there, where he realizes his mistake and sacrifices himself so that Frodo can continue on on his journey. 
But then later he meets, as you mentioned, Faramir, his brother, and he's like, I would not take this, you know, if it were <laughs> laying on the side of the road. So I'm definitely yeah. not going to steal it from you. Like he knows <clears throat> this is not not going to be helpful. Yeah, that was, you know, the 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 movies. I love Peter Jackson's movies, but the movies really did Faramir a little bit of a disservice there because mm -hmm. he's he he says that right at the beginning. And in the movies, he's like, Okay, I'll do it for dad. And, yeah, he thinks know, about it more. Yeah. Right. And I mean, the, the, just a verse that comes to my mind is, you know, Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And you know, we want to overcome evil. And I know there are so many problems in the world today. And you know, a lot of people disagree on what those are. But sometimes it's really not about, you know, what the problem is. It's how are you going to deal with it? Are you going to use evil's methods do you think well this time it'll be different right yeah i know this war and violence and these sort of things yeah okay they're not the best but i mean we just kind of need to it's the only thing that's going to work and tolkien sees as i think christ was trying to get us to see that that's just going to continue creating the world that we already have it if we want a new world uh, if we want the kingdom of god then it's got to come through kingdom means not the world's means yeah that that's right because even at the end Frodo fails, you know, mm -hmm. and Tolkien got a lot of hate mail for this. People were really <laughs> mad that the hero of this journey fails. He can't do it. Right. And, you know, Tolkien compared it to, um, uh, let's say, a, a POW who's captured and valiantly resists torture, um, but eventually is broken. Um, it, it's not their fault that, that mm. they break. And the same is with Frodo. Um, he he resisted with every ounce of his being until at last, at the cracks of doom, he breaks. Um, but he should be honored and lauded for that because he he put up a longer fight, more than anyone could do, uh, and um, deserves deserves a lot of credit for that. But you know, it's the ultimately the ring isn't destroyed through the sheer willpower of the heroes. Um, mm. It's destroyed because of grace <laughs> that Bilbo showed to Gollum. Creature corrupted by the ring ends up being its own demise. Yeah, evil is self-destructive, right. which I think is also yeah. kind of a Christian idea. Not yeah. that we just kind of sit back and let it you know, run its course, but this the will to power, the love of power, ultimately, that's the only place that it's going to go. And so evil still doesn't win, even even though Frodo fails. And you know, I, I can't remember. I meant to look up the line from the book. I, I don't assume that you have it memorized, but <laughs> you know, as Gollum takes the ring from Frodo at the end, biting off his finger, I, I think it says something of like it seems like there was a little something that kind of pushed Gollum back, right? Which again, I think was a little clue of that. You know, uh, the you catastrophe or the God at work, Eru Elevatar at work. We know that in all things, Eru Elevatar works for the good of those who love him. We've been called as ring bearers according to his purpose. To <laughs> right, right. <laughs> paraphrase uh, Romans eight twenty eight. So again, it's this idea that uh, even the 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 prime deity in this story is not just bursting in and, and taking control over people, but is working through people as fallible as they are, uh, which tends to be the way that I think about God in in our world. That God is not coming in and dominating and controlling people, but God is working with people and through people, and God can even use our failures to, to achieve good ends. So the love of power, right? Tolkien sees 
in his own lifetime, how that has, has been destructive. And he's presenting this world where people are dealing with it in a very different way, right? With a magical ring and, and these other things. So I, I just, I wanted to, to, there's this wonderful quote by uh, scholar Douglas Blunt uh, in his article. Um, you know, he, he's, um, it's called Uber, Uber Hobbits, Tolkien, Nietzsche, and the Will to Power. And he kind of compares this Nietzschean view of power, which is that if there's power to be had, you should seize it mm. uh, and use it to your own advantage. And uh, Tolkien's view, which is more the Christian worldview, right? But he, he closes his article with this beautiful quote. Strength, according to Tolkien, manifests itself most clearly, not in the exercise of power, but in the willingness to give it up. The greatest examples of action of the spirit and of reason, he tells us, so this is from one of his letters, are in abnegation. Abnegation, which is the subordination of one's will for the sake of others, that according to the portrait Tolkien presents, is what characterizes a life lived well. And given its obvious beauty, such a portrait needs no argument to defend it. Yeah, I mean, that, that is central to the Christian story, the, the self-giving nature of Christ, the kenosis, right, is the Greek word that, that we Bible nerds like to use all the time, <laughs> the self-emptying. That's what Christ does in the incarnation, in the crucifixion, the only way to be raised up is to lower yourself. And so, yeah, even so that's working its way through everything, I think, that, that he's trying to say. And so that kind of leads into the second major theme, right? We're seeing the problem with the love of power. And so what he's presenting instead, Tolkien, is, is the power of love. And so as we're thinking about right, this kind of Christ-like nature of, of giving up of your own power for the sake of others, um, we see that all throughout these stories. So we just want to think about a few scenes uh, where where this happens. So what's one of the first ones you think of? The first one I think of is, is probably not your typical one, but it's uh, Sam and um, Frodo. They're in Mordor uh, and everything is bleak. They're weary. And then we, you get this passage in Return of the King where it says, uh, Sam struggled with his own weariness he took Frodo's hand, and there he sat silent till deep night fell. Then at last, to keep himself awake, he crawled from the hiding place and looked out. That uh, The land seemed full of creaking and cracking and sly noises, and there was no sound of voice or foot. Far above Ethel Duath in the west, the night sky was still dim and pale. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white twinkle for a while the beauty of it smote his heart and he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him for like a shaft clear and cold thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing there was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach his song in the tower had been in defiance rather than hope uh, for then he was thinking of himself now for a moment his own fate and even his master's ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep untroubled sleep. You know, it, it's a beautiful passage uh, that, that really gets at uh, a couple of things. First, this is the way that I think um, it is helpful to think about theological themes in Tolkien is that they're not it's not in your face. Well, like we talked about it's not allegorical. It's these shafts of clear, bright light that break through 
and fill you with hope. Um, and that, that's the second you know, theme here that is beautiful is this Christian ideal of hope, um, that all of these things matter and are going somewhere. Yeah, it doesn't make light of the darkness. I mean, they're in Mordor. Right? Yeah, as, right. As their lowest point almost, and yeah. yet just that one little thing. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting that in this world of hobbits and elves and wizards and, and orcs, that seems so fantastical and you would think that, well, of course, divine beings would also, if there's a God in this world, that God would be breaking in and speaking all the time. It seems like the God in this world works kind of the way God does in this. Yeah. Our own. Right. That it's, it's just small little moments that even if you don't pay attention to it, it's nothing. Right. It doesn't, that star doesn't actually change their situation. It doesn't like give them powers it, it just it instills that hope and and that's i think what we should also expect and be looking for what are those signs um that remind us that as as dark as the shadows are they are passing and there's something that is deeper than that you know another theme of of this power of love i think we mentioned it earlier the idea of what about Gollum? Right, um, this he's so twisted and corrupted by his love of power, his love of his precious ring, and so there's this scene early. In, it's in Fellowship where they're in the mines of Moria, and so Frodo is, is talking with Gandalf about Gollum, and he says, "It's a pity Bibbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance." And Gandalf responds, "Pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death." Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play in it, for good or evil, before this is over. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. Frodo says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, says Gandalf, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides that of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you were also meant to have it. And that is encouraging thought. So this idea of, of pity, which in some ways is equivalent to mercy. Maybe it's just the way we like to think about it, right? I, I don't want to be pitied, but you know, I do want you to show mercy to me. But yeah. In a lot of ways, they're really not that different. And, you know, Frodo's idea that, you know, it's just a shame that he didn't kill him, right? That would have just made things easier, right? That's kind of that love of power thinking of, well, if we just wipe out these bad people, wipe out someone, get rid of Gollum, and that'll just solve this problem. But Gandalf has the wisdom to say, you don't know the whole story here. You don't know where things are going. We don't know who deserves life and death. Uh, and so judgment is something that we should kind of hold lightly. And, you know, again, like we've mentioned, we get, I think, a little bit of a clue of, you know, Gandalf, uh, where he, who sent him and what he believes are in. Right? There are other forces at work in this world. He doesn't name them, but he, he's trying to help Frodo see that you know, it's not just evil. Evil is very in-your-face and obvious, 
right? They're they're going to fight some orcs pretty or goblins pretty quickly after this. Yeah, it's this reminder that there there's other forces at work and forces that are working towards good. And I, I think you know, this quote makes its way around a lot, where Frodo says, "You know, I wish I wish I didn't have to live through this. I wish it hadn't happened to me." But we don't get to choose that. Instead, we choose. What do we do with the power that we have in this moment? What do we do in the circumstances that we're in? Uh, and that's our place to to find the good that we can do. I, I can also see Tolkien talking to himself, maybe even his younger self. Mm. Uh, picture a, a young uh, Lieutenant Tolkien on the battlefield saying, you know, I wish none of this had ever happened to me. Um, yeah. Why is this happening? You know, and many that live deserve death and some that die deserve life like, can you give it to them um don't be eager to deal out death in judgment um, I, I can see this as he's working through some of his own demons from from his, his life uh, and the things he's had to face much um, surface here in his work yeah like those those things seem so easy at first right but, yeah right these those easy answers that often are about the will to power they don't lead where we think they're going to lead us. Well, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, you, it's easy now, for instance, 100 years later to to look at World War One or two, for instance, and go, oh, the, the Americans were the good guys, especially if you're an American. The Americans mm -hmm. are good guys and Germans are bad guys. Ta-da. And it's not that easy. Um, it's, 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 it's way more complex and, and horrible, terrible even. Um, and it, it, it humanizes these people. They're not the Americans aren't bad. The Germans aren't bad. Like they're, there's, it's way more complex here. And I've, mm -hmm. it, through one of the beauties of fiction is it allows us to approach truths that we know are true through something, through a, through a made up story. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we see this happening here. Do right, you have any, uh, any other scenes that you think display the, the power of love, the Christ-like ideas coming through in, in Tolkien's work? Yeah, um, you know, I, I just uh, briefly, you know, there's this uh, scene at the end of The Hobbit where, you know, Thorin has been taken by this dragon sickness, this uh, wanting to hoard wealth, and it drives him mad, which, you know, we see happen in real life, of course. And We already mentioned Jeff Bezos. That's right. And so, uh, you know, on, on his deathbed, he's, he's apologizing to Bilbo, right? And he says, there is more in you of good than you know, child of the kindly West, some courage and some wisdom blended in measure. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. And, you know, I hear um, the, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, talking about, you know, the, the flowers, they're not mm. out hustling, right? They're, they're not working mm -hmm. hard. Uh, they're, they're, God provides them. They, the, the birds of the air, God takes care of them and feeds them. Uh, and how much more for, for you, right? But um, or the, the rich young ruler, right? Jesus says, go, go sell all your things. Uh, that's what's keeping you from this kingdom. It seems like uh, there, there's something to this idea of, of focusing on people and love in this world rather than the love of things, uh, which mm -hmm. can take us away from, uh, from God. Yeah. Just like, you know, how he's, Tolkien is kind of ambivalent or skeptical about technology. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you can use it for good ends, which I mean, you're in, in from here in that world, thinking about technology a lot, 
right? Next time you next time you watch Lord of the Rings, watch who has technology, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's always the bad guys, and it's always used yeah. to, to destroy stuff. Yeah, I mean, Saruman versus the Ents is pretty right. pretty clear. Yeah, and, uh, might be nice if the trees would rise up now and do something, <laughs> but it's on us, right? right? It's in our hands. So one of the other, I think, maybe most famous scenes comes towards the end when they're Frodo has given up. It's not his complete failure. Uh, but let's hear what, what Sam says uh, to Frodo at this very pivotal moment on Mount Doom. Yeah, it's certainly a clip that gives me goosebumps every time. Every time. Yeah, yeah that's why I had to play it. I couldn't just read it for you. Uh, so it's, to me, for one thing, this uh, Sam is the best character. Like you say, he's kind of the hero. And in a lot of ways, it's the most Christ-like. Of, he's so often willing to be selfless and not think this story is going to be about him, even though he is the one that, that makes it, it happen. And so... It, for one thing, it reminds me of the importance of community. I mean, that's what the church is, that our faith is not just me doing the things that I'm supposed to do and, and you know, getting to heaven, getting to Valinor, whatever it may be, <laughs> right. but that we, we cannot make it if we're not supported by others. And that there are going to be moments, and I know I've had them, and I'm sure you have as well, where my faith falls short and I can't do it, and I need somebody to carry me. You know, I think of the story in the gospel of uh, the paralyzed man where his friends, you know, open up the roof and lower him to, to be healed by Jesus. But it, it's one of these lines that if you don't pay attention, you may not notice it, where uh, he writes, when Jesus saw their faith, uh, that's when he, he heals him. Right? He doesn't, it doesn't say anything about this paralyzed man having faith. It's the faith of his friends, it's the people who literally carry him. Yeah, and, for sure. Uh, it, that that's the power of love too. That when I my, when my love falls short, when I fall short on that debt, that that there are other people who can carry me, and you know bear my burdens, as Paul says in Galatians six. And so you know Sam, I think epitomizes that that you know he can't carry the ring. Yeah. He's I mean he does carry it for a little bit, right? He knows in some way this is still Frodo's task, but his task is to support Frodo, right? And it's kind of also, you know, to, to not take on, I have to, okay, I'll do this. You failed. So now I'm the guy. No, it's like, no, you're still, Frodo's still going to do it, but I'm going to carry him and help him do it. Yeah. So, I mean, again, the scene kind of speaks for itself for the, if there's anyone, I don't know why you'd be listening to this. If you haven't watched Lord of the Rings yet, <laughs> go do but, it. Uh, yes. Go do it. Take nine or 10 hours and go watch them. Cause it all kind of builds up to that moment in a lot of ways, I think. More like 12 hours. There's only uh, one real edition of the movies, and that's the extended edition. <laughs> the one the one to rule them all. I know the other day, <laughs> someone was saying like, this, there's not really a need for those. They didn't really add anything. I'm like, how dare you, sir? Yeah, come on. Um, yeah. 
these these are not just about plot. The, the, some of the character stuff, character work, and those are great. Okay, so we've we focused really on the love of power as as kind of the root of the problems in in the world of Middle Earth, and the power of love as the solution to that. So we've only seen you know a few episodes of Rings of Power so far, but how do you see it working with these themes? First, the the love of power. Uh, for me, you know, seeing how the the king of the elves, Gilgalad, wants to just ignore the threat. You know, it, this is one of these plot lines that to me feels a little overdone. Yeah. Though that only one person is the one who still takes evil seriously, and everyone else <laughs> like, no, no, it's fine. Sauron just he just kind of pieced out, so don't worry about it anymore. Right. But it, it's a form of control, right? If if this king uh, has to admit that there's still evil out there and he doesn't know how to defeat it, then he's losing some of his power. And so it's, it's his fear, right? The love of power leads to the fear of losing power. And so that seems to be functioning uh, in the story. And Galadriel is the only one who's willing to do it. But I don't know. Do you think she has some of this love of power as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, she wants to crush Sauron and destroy him uh, because, of course, uh, he killed her brother. And um, she's willing to you know, throw aside anything um, and, and reject this wonderful gift that you know, she's given in the show of, of going home to, to the place where the elves live close to Valinor. And she, she's willing to disobey the king and uh, she wants to take an army and destroy Sauron. And she, you know, she's ready to use the power that she has to destroy evil in the world. Uh, and she hasn't yet realized that's not going to work. Uh, yeah. And some people have complained about that, but I think if you're going to give uh, someone who's lived for thousands and thousands of years, a character arc, <laughs> you got to start with somewhere, right? She's got to eventually become the the lady of light, uh, Galadriel from uh, the Peter Jackson's movies, uh, who seems like a completely different person. And I'm okay with that because she's on a journey. Yeah. Yeah. If you have thousands of years to live, I mean, you say that elves generally don't change, but you're going to be affected by, by some things. So right. it's okay that she's getting it. But yeah, she's willing to, she doesn't care what other people she, you know, harms or forces them to do things. Um, again, it's a good purpose. She wants yeah. to stop Sauron, although it's a little bit personal just because she wants revenge. Yeah. Um, which is usually not the best approach. Uh, so yeah, love of power is even influencing her as she's trying to do the right thing. And then we, in the third episode, then we get to the land of Numenor with these men, and they're also uh, kind of caught up. And I guess that also happens with the dwarves a little bit. They don't want anything to do with anyone else. We haven't mentioned the dwarves much. So this, I think, this pull for people to kind of huddle by themselves and let's just take care of ourselves and we're not going to worry about these things because they don't seem to be affecting us right now. Right. Which again, it's, it's comes to that place of fear. Uh, but it's, it's a loss of control that if we have to depend on someone else, uh, I don't, I don't want to have to do that. And so I see that kind of happening in several of the storylines to, to some effect. So there's a lot of suspicion the, the men uh, don't want these elves that are coming to kind of patrol and watch out for them. I mean, they don't see the orcs that are literally under their feet, so maybe they're right to think that. But nobody wants to, you know, work with anyone else who's not like them. Where do we see the power of love 
at work in these stories. Do we are we finding much of that yet so far? You think? Um, there's there's been a few bright spots, um, like the the love story between the human uh, woman and the elf Arondir in the Southlands. And you know, we haven't seen a lot of that yet, um, but it, it, it's clear that there's this this love between them. And while not um, canonical, it, it certainly echoes themes from Tolkien's narratives like Baron and Luthien, Baron being a man, Luthien, uh, an elf maiden, and uh, they fall in love and um, it uh, goes very bad. It's a tragedy. Um, but <laughs> sometimes love is tragic. Yeah. So, so this is a Tolkien story anyway. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we see that, that his love, Arendir's love for her is what motivates him to confront the evil that's growing there. Uh, and it, it, it helps him, uh, gives him courage. Uh, we also have Nori, the, I guess they're not hobbits, they're Harfoots. Um, <laughs> yeah. can, uh, can you explain the difference there? For our listeners and also me, I, mean, I, I think it's best to think of them as proto hobbits. Okay, not Frodo hobbits. Proto. No. Yeah. Before they settle down in the Shire, mm-hmm. and because right now they're they're very um, mobile, yeah. right? They they migrate. Yeah. So Nori and so you, their last names are sort of sound like hobbity names, kind of mm-hmm. Brandyfoot instead of Brandybuck. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Nori uh, Brandyfoot helps the stranger. You know, even though. Uh, the, their their community is very suspicious of any strangers. As soon as someone shows up, they all hide uh, in in excellent camo. And yet, <laughs> this weird guy who shows up and you know, kills lightning bugs, um, she still thinks he deserves to be helped, and is going to help him, even if it means they get left behind. And so that will probably come around, right? The, going back to the, you know that quote from Gandalf about you know if you show pity, who knows what might come of it. You're not the one that needs to decide what, uh, who deserves to die and who deserves to live, but do what you can for others. And then, you know, you mentioned that we hadn't seen dwarves much, but, and just briefly, Elrond embarrasses himself with his dwarven ritual of cracking rocks just to get an audience with his friend so he can apologize to him. And his friendship matters more to him than looking foolish. And he does seem to be very apologetic, right? This is not just, oh, I just need to get them to build this thing for me you know, eventually kind of touches on it, but he really does uh, appreciate this. And, you know, it's like, did they even send him a wedding invite? I don't know if, if yeah, right. how that slight works, if maybe it was yeah. the dwarves' fault a little bit too. So, yeah, I, th- I think we're still waiting to see exactly how Rings of Power is going to shake out. It hasn't wowed me as much as I, you know, thought it might. I, I obviously came into it a little bit skeptical. Yeah. And some of those concerns have still not been completely dealt with. But we'll see. I mean, this is, I think this is the question going forward. Not just, does it look pretty? Which, yes, it does. Is it acted well? Eh, sort of. But is it really being true to these themes that were so central to Tolkien's work about the way that power corrupts and the way that love is actually more powerful even than that? So as you're watching, pay attention to that and see where that's coming out and if it's not, and to me, if that will be the determining whether it really was a failure, if it does misunderstand these fundamental aspects of what Tolkien was trying to do in his work. Are they trying to do the same thing and contribute to that message? Or are they just trying to create more content in the Lord of the Rings world that people like? 
you know, is it a is it a fundamentally cynical work or is it a fundamentally hopeful one? I think that'll be the difference. Yeah. And I think that question is still open even after a few episodes, but we shall see. All right. Well, thanks for uh, being my Tolkien correspondent. My pleasure. Giving way more information about names and ages than um, maybe a lot of people care for, but uh, I at least appreciate it because as a nerd, I feel like I should at least try and understand the, the big picture and <laughs> these sort of things. Well, as we're getting towards our, the end of the show, uh, one of the segments we always do is our pop culture consolations and desolations. As you know, because we went through seminary together, this is based on uh, the prayer of examine from Ignatius of Loyola in the idea of looking at what is life-giving and what is not giving life. But instead of looking for the presence of the fruit of the Spirit or turning away from it, we're just giving recommendations about things we liked and things that we haven't liked too much. So, James, what has been your pop culture consolation this week? What's given you life? Uh, it's definitely been Star Trek Lower Decks. And that show is hilarious. And it feels like the most Star Trek show to come out in a really long time because it, uh, it, it it's very uh, episodic. You know, they're not trying to, um, to tell a grand story. One of the things that has really gotten me down about some recent Star Treks is that um, it, it feels like every episode the the world the universe is at stake you know everything Mm. is 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 teetering on this one moment and eventually that gets really emotionally tiring Um, but lower decks just takes itself really lightly there's all kinds of throwbacks and um, you know mentions from other shows they got guest voice actors from the other shows that come in uh, and they they still manage to hit on some star trekky ideas that make it so special like what does it mean to be human, uh, and and how do we explore our humanity um, in a in this allegorical way? So it's just it's lovely. All right, and where can people find that show? Uh, I think it's streaming on Paramount Plus. Okay, yeah, Paramount has all the the Star Trek stuff. So all right, I haven't checked that out yet, but I have heard a lot of good things about Star Trek Lower Decks. Uh, my uh, Pop culture consolation this week is a new album that just came out called Hold the Girl by Rina Sawayama. She's a British artist, and it's kind of odd to think that you could already be getting music that is a throwback to the late 90s and early 2000s. Like I think of the 2000s as like, well, that's now, right? No, that was 20 years ago. Oh, Uh, and so it's kind of a pop sort of album but there's you hear hints of like early kelly clarkson there's a song that's very much uh sounds like shania twain like she even says let's go girls yeah (laughs) um so it's it's been really great and you know a lot of the themes of it are about loving yourself you know the the title track uh we'll play a little bit of it so you can hear that here in this song hold the girl she's kind of singing to her younger self and you know trying to 
think about what she's learned since then, but not lose that innocent self that she had as well and and to love her past self, which, you know, as we're both getting older, uh, I just hit 40. You, it sounds like you're getting close to it. I am. Uh, thinking about your younger self and how they would have thought about you. Just having some um, some grace for who we used to be, uh, I think is great. So that's uh, Rina Sawayama. The album is Hold the Girl. Uh, you find that on Apple Music and Spotify. Cool. All right, so do you have a pop culture desolation this week? Anything that is not giving you life? Uh, yeah, I mean, just in, in general, I think the something that w- was a, a consolation a long time ago was the, the MCU. Uh, and I think it just, it, it feels like there's so much happening uh, and it's all disparate and it's hard to keep track of with all the shows and um, it, it feels too sprawling, too monstrous. And uh, just, it feels overwhelming now and kind of has, has lost its way a, a little bit, not, not throwing any shade on a particular show. I'm just saying um, mm-hmm. in general, I feel overloaded with these things. Uh, and I feel like Star Wars is headed the same way, right? We don't need more of that. And one of my deep fears is that Lord of the Rings will become, you know, its own, you know, there'll be a, a, a Tolkienian cinematic universe. And I just, just want to <laughs> die inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I mean, we had a, I had a recent episode with another ACU uh, colleague, a uh, friend of both of ours about content creation. It's like, yeah, we just got to keep pumping out the content. And that's very much the way that uh, Marvel is thinking about it. And, you know, as I'm more of a comic book nerd. And so for me, I just try to think of it as like, well, yeah, it's not like every comic book that comes out is one connected story like they were able to do at the beginning. And so in some ways it's okay. It's like, well, okay, I'm not going to check this one out and and that's okay. And But since, you know, as we've seen, it was so set up to all be connected and it all matters. It's all right. pointing towards this one story. It's like, okay, are we not doing that now? And it, so it does feel a little meandering at times. And uh, sure. so we'll see where it goes. Still, I'm liking most of it, but just the, it becomes overwhelming to try and hold it all together and know if it's going anywhere in particular. Right. Well, the only thing I could mention as kind of both Desolation and Consolation as they just announced the official title for the sequel to Breath of the Wild, which uh, will be called Tears of the Kingdom. Yes. My uh, Desolation is that it's not coming out until May of next year. <laughs> right. It was supposed to come out last year, and like I think on January 1st, my son, the first thing he said on January 1st was, this is the year that the sequel is going to come out to Breath of the Wild. <laughs> And so it's like two years after that. Yeah. But, you know, I appreciate that Nintendo is, they take their time. They don't rush things. So I know it's going to be amazing. But, yeah, my son still plays Breath of the Wild all the time. Oh, and my son I've too. gone back to it multiple times. Yep. It's probably one of my favorite games ever. Yeah. As a lifelong Zelda fan. Mm-hmm. So I'm sad that I have to wait so long, but excited that we get just a hint more of, <laughs> of what is coming. Right. All right. Well, thanks for being with us this week, James. Uh, I appreciate your insight and getting to talk about all this. I hope people feel very nerded out by all of the Tolkien, uh, but especially that they have a, a deeper grasp of it from everything that we're able to share. So thanks for being with us. Thanks. Well, as we come to the close of our show today, we need to get serious for a second, as we always do. You know, I do this podcast because this burden was placed on me. It is my burden to deliver this message to you every other week. And yet sometimes this burden that I bear 
is too much. And I know you can't carry it. You are not the ordained pop culture pastor. But in what seems like our darkest hours, I need you to carry me. And the way that you can do that is by liking, subscribing, and sharing on social media. Leave us a review is the only way to conquer the forces of evil. Be my Samwise Gamgee and carry your Mr. Frodo. Well, as always, Pop Culture Pastor is produced and written by me. Actually, a lot of writing this week by James. Thanks again for being my guest today. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook for more content at Pop Culture Pastor. Our theme song is Be Thou My Vision from the 8-Bit Hymnal by Mr. Tyler Larson. You are now dismissed. Go in peace and take us away, Bilbo. I regret to announce this is the end. I'm going now. I bid you all a very fond farewell. <laughs>